Please be seated. Grab a Bible, open up to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 5. I was sitting in the back there when uh, the kids were dismissed this morning, and one of the kids as he was walking out was like, oh man, I like this song. I want to stay and sing. I felt bad. Oh, I'll sing extra loud for you, I promise. <laughs> it's awesome. So if you guys remember uh, a couple months back, the last book that we studied through uh, before we got to Acts was the book of Joshua, right? And, and I know that uh, a number of you were here when we were processing through that. And so think back uh, to, to that time uh, where God is uh, finally answering that promise to send his people into the promised land. And, and Moses has passed off leadership to Joshua. And Joshua is, has, uh, ha, like through God's leading, crossed the Jordan. They're on the other side. The first big obstacle The first big military thing they gotta face is Jericho, right? This huge big city, big walls all the way around it. Uh, but God says, don't even sweat it. Like, not a big deal. And He gives them the rules. Here's what you gotta do. You gotta march around it a bunch of times and blow some trumpets and it's all gonna fall down. And then you go in there and you just wipe it out. Just wipe everything out completely. Don't save anything. Don't take anything. Uh, there's other times where you're going to be allowed to take some stuff to, to keep some of the plunder from, from the city, but not this time. This time, you just go in there and you wipe it all out and you move on. And after the victory, like God shows up and the city falls and they go in and they just wipe the place out. It's a huge victory. They're encouraged. God is with us. God is for us. It's awesome. The next fight they have to face is AI, right? Like a dinky little city. Not even a problem. We don't even send all of us. We'll just send a little group there. They go, they fight, and they get whooped, right? The Israelites get beat. And, and so afterwards, as they're like reassessing, uh, Joshua goes to God and says, God, w- what happened here? Like, I thought you were with us. I thought you were fighting for us. How could we lose And God says, well, it's because one of you didn't follow the rules. There's somebody who took something from Jericho. He wasn't supposed to. And that has meant all of Israel is now in trouble. And, and so if you remember through this, this like process of, of winnowing it out, they discover that this guy named Achan has taken some gold and some silver and a nice robe that he really liked and he hid it, uh, in his, in his tent. And, and when Joshua confronts them, he says, I saw it, and I coveted it, and I took it, and I hid it. And the consequences for this are, are severe, right? I mean, not only, not only are the Israelites, uh, prevented from winning this, this battle, but now Achan and his whole family and everything that he owns is separated out from the rest of the camp and, and destroyed. And the severity of that punishment at that point in time, it reflects the seriousness of the sin, but it also highlights the danger that the people of God faced right there at that pivotal point as they're, as they're beginning this journey to, to take the promised land. And there's no doubt that at that point in time, Satan understood that if he could cause dissension, if he could cause disunity, if he could get just one guy to disobey God, he would throw everything out of whack. And it worked. It worked for, for a moment. God, God doesn't instantly zap every thief 
who disobeys. But in this case, with Achan, in this, this very early, very pivotal time in the life of the nation of Israel, this, this severe example was needed. As I was, I was reading through Acts chapter 5, I couldn't help but see maybe a parallel between what happens here at this early pivotal stage in the life of the church and what happened back there in Joshua. Here in Acts, uh, it's, it's at this, this time where the church has just begun. It's just starting. It's just starting to grow. But you can already see how attack is, is coming. Like it, they've already been facing some, some opposition from the outside and now from the inside. Follow along with Acts chapter 5. Actually, I'm going to start in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, because I think that helps us understand a little bit better what's going on. It says, now Joseph, a Levite, a Cyprian, uh, of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translates, uh, translated means son of encouragement. If you're going to have a nickname, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> son of encouragement. Awesome. He owned a tract of land and he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Awesome. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. Bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after you sold it, Was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. She said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. He carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, uh, I talked about the difference in different passages of Scripture between descriptive passages and prescriptive, right? Descriptive are describing events that took place. Usually it's, it's history. Acts falls into that camp for the most part. It's descriptive, describing things that took place at this early point in the life of the church. Prescriptive is more instructions. It's more commands. It's things that we're prescribed to do. This is 
descriptive, right? This is describing this one event. This isn't setting a precedent or, or teaching uh, about something that's, that's at all going to be normative. Fortunately, fortunately for us, God doesn't strike down everyone who lies about their religious devotion, right? Because if He did, then probably all of us would be dead for saying the words, I'll pray for you, right? Think about it. <laughs> We all say that, and then we forget. But like Achan in the Old Testament, here in the New Testament, like the, the power and the glory of God are at stake. What we've seen so far in Acts are these just amazing displays of God's power. The Spirit of God enables uh, the apostles to, to speak in every different language and everybody can, can hear and understand them preaching the Gospel. The Spirit of God enables them to heal and do all these amazing miracles. The Spirit of God grants them boldness when they're arrested and on trial and have to answer questions. All of these things are a sign that God is right there with them, that His hand is on them, that His Spirit is in them. God is empowering them and protecting them. And remember back, back in Matthew 16, Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And I think the reason that Jesus made that promise to Peter is because Jesus knew that there was going to be a time when the gates of hell would try to overcome the church. Where it would be under attack. Where it would face opposition. But Satan doesn't give up when Jesus rises from the dead, right? Even though he knows he's beat and he knows he's on borrowed time, his hatred of God and his opposition only intensify. And, and when his attempts to threaten and to hurt and to destroy the church from the outside fail, he tries to attack the church from the inside. But, but that, this, this inside attack, it fails pretty quickly too, right? Peter, who is just so full of the Holy Spirit of God, is able to see right through Satan's scheme here. What question does he ask Ananias? Like right off the bat, he asks him, why? Why? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why? Why have you allowed him to mess with you? This isn't just an affront to the church. This isn't just a lie to men. But this is blasphemy to God. And the worst part is, it's totally unnecessary. Peter says it was yours. You didn't have to sell anything. That's not a rule we have around here at the church that you got to sell it. You didn't have to do that. You were never under any compulsion to donate. You didn't have to give all. You could have, you could have sold it and kept some and said, here, here's half. And that would have been great. That would have been a blessing. But this attempt to deceive in order to, I don't know, be seen as more holy or more righteous than you really are, uh, maybe as uh, like an, an attempt to gain some sort of position of authority or power in, in the church, whatever your motives are, the, you're, this lie is totally unnecessary. His wife, Sapphira, comes up a few hours later, doesn't know what's happened to her husband, and Peter asks her straight out, is this how much you sold your land for? And she lies like her husband did, and then Peter asks the same question, why? Why? Why did you guys conspire together 
to test the Holy Spirit? And I I don't know what that answer is. We don't know because they don't talk a lot after this, right? I mean, they're gone pretty quick. Maybe because they don't really believe in the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's what he's saying. Why are you testing to see whether or not the Holy Spirit is a real thing? Why would you do that? Maybe they didn't believe. Maybe they still thought that religion was supposed to be this uh, like outward activity, like appearance-based. Maybe they thought that it was fine as long as we look like we're good and like we're doing the right thing and we're doing a bunch of religious things, even though on the inside we really don't care or it's really don't believe. They must have thought that it would have benefited them in, in some way and that they would never get caught. Ultimately, the reason was because they believed a lie. They believed some kind of lie from the liar, from Satan, who told them something that wasn't true and they believed it. Whether it was nobody will ever find out, it's not a big deal, you deserve to keep it, this is going to make you look good. Whatever the lie was that Satan told, they believed it. And... and Satan's lies, his schemes, his tricks, they're not all that creative. They're not all that new. He uses the same ones over and over and over again because they work. They're effective. Probably first and foremost, the scheme that Satan uses against us all the time is trying to play on our selfish pride, right? That is the lever that he's going to try and pry us away from God with all the time because it is just such a big thing that we all struggle with. Every one of us has this pride. Here, here, Ananias and Sapphira, they see the example of Barnabas, like selling a bunch of land, giving all the money. Everybody praises him and like calls him the son of encouragement. Like he's this awesome guy. They wanted that too. They wanted that praise too. From the very beginning, I think their motives were probably out of whack. Barnabas gives out of this heart of love and devotion to God and and to the church. These guys just wanted other people to like them more. Pride's a big thing. Pride is pride that caused Satan to fall. It was pride that convinced Adam and Eve that they could be like God. And it's, and it's our pride that gets us into trouble every single day. The antidote to that, the antidote to pride is to humble ourselves before God. To place ourselves under His authority and His control. To, to care more about loving Him and honoring Him and living for Him than we care about getting what we want or being praised by others. Along with pride, I think here Satan uses their greed. It's, it's possible that Ananias and Sapphira, they saw what Barnabas did and they were moved they thought, yeah, we, we want to do the same kind of thing. But when they actually had the money in their hand, then greed kicks in. And they're like, I don't think we can give all of this. There's no way we can let all of this go. 
Paul tells Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I mean, I think the antidote to this, this greed that, that we all wrestle with is realizing that everything that we have is a gift from God's hand. It's all His. And our responsibility is to simply be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Satan uses uh, their pride. He uses greed. And he, and he does that all for the purpose of bringing about disunity. I think that's, that's like the ultimate goal. I think that's what Satan wants more than anything else is disunity, is discord, is, is for us to be fractured and split and for our motives uh, to be uh, not what they should be. And I think, I think what he wanted to do is to harm this church by filling it with people who were there for the wrong reasons. People who maybe look sincere on the outside, but who are just controlled by selfishness rather than a devotion to their God. And the, and the result of this serious punishment is a, a, a big heart check for everybody's there, right? I mean, you have some people come in and flop down dead. That would cause you to like evaluate your motives a little bit, I think. It was also just another sign that the Holy Spirit of God was real and was present and was with them. Here's the question that, that I don't know, it came to my mind as I'm, as I'm reading through this. I, I think it's a natural question that you've got to ask as you're processing through this passage. The question I have is, are Ananias and Sapphira Christians? Are they like genuinely saved? Are they believers? Uh, <laughs> so I read all my commentaries to see what they think. And the majority of my commentaries say, yeah, they think they are actual, genuine believers just because of where they were. Like, because they're on the inside of the church, they're a part of the church. It's more than likely that they're a part of hearing Peter preach one of those gospel messages at some point along the way. They've more than likely been a part of, of the, the big old mass baptisms that have taken place. They're there meeting together with the rest of the church they're enough of an insider where they see Barnabas give his gift and, and want to try and respond in, in a similar way. Are, are Christians, actual, genuine, saved and, seals, and sealed Christians, are we immune from temptation and sin and Satan's schemes? No, no, we're not. Satan will, he will try to use our pride and our greed and our selfishness and our anything else to make us ineffective. And, and, and the New Testament is full of warning signs about this enemy. This enemy who, who he tried to tempt Jesus. If he's trying to tempt Jesus, do you think maybe he's going to put some temptations in front of us? Absolutely. This enemy who asked to sift Peter like wheat, 
This, this enemy who was, who was a thorn in Paul's side. Man, you, you bet the enemy of God is going to try and mess with the children of God. And Satan's schemes are the same as they've always been. Again, he's, he's not all that creative, but he's still on the attack. And I think we need to know, we need to know what his schemes are and we need to know how to defend against them. We, we need to know how to protect ourselves from his lies and temptation. The Bible has a lot to say about what, what we need to do. First, we need to be aware. We just need to know that there really is an enemy. Because again, I, th- I think that's one of the ways that he wants to fool us and to trick us into thinking that, no, there's no Satan. That's just like a boogeyman that your parents created to make you eat all your broccoli or something. That's not a real thing. But It's easy for us today to become complacent and to forget that there's an enemy who will attack. First Peter 5, uh, 8 and 9. He says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Here Peter is talking to believers, to Christians. Right? He's saying a couple of different things. You be, Beware. Be careful. He's prowling around looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm. And realize that it's not just you. All of us, all of us as, as believers, as Christians, are under attack. This, we gotta pay attention. We gotta be aware because this enemy of ours is, is cunning and he's tricky and he doesn't play fair. He will attack us at our weak spots. He will attack when we are tired. He'll attack when we're frustrated. He'll attack when we're frightened. He'll attack when we're hungry, right? He'll attack us in whatever weak spot he can get at us. In in Ephesians 4.26, Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Satan will use things like our anger. And, and he'll inflate them and try and cause them to grow and to get bigger and more serious until it blossoms into, into like bitterness and hatred and, and, then, and then bursts into, into sin and outbursts in ways that cause destruction. Just a few chapters uh, after Ephesians 4 there. In Ephesians 6, Paul reminds us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? Like we so often think it is. We think our enemy is other people or other political party. Whatever our, our enemy is, it's, it's not things down here, he says. It's our struggle is against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ananias and Sapphira, they let their guard down. They underestimated the enemy. They fell victim to this temptation to be popular, to greed and to pride. 
And maybe, at least to some degree, the reason why God responds so swiftly and severely in this case here is to help warn and protect the rest of the church. I mean, it's, it's better, it's always better to be a good example of what to do than a bad example of what not to do, right? But, but both are helpful. And in this case, they serve as an example of what not to do. So the Bible tells us we need to be aware of our enemy. And it tells us in a number of places that we need to resist him. I mean, that, that passage in 1 Peter says those words. Resist him standing firm in the faith. James says the same thing. James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Submit yourselves to God then. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does that mean? What does it mean to resist the devil? Here in, in James, what that means for him is it, we resist the devil by drawing closer and closer to God. And the more we allow the Holy Spirit of God to guide us and to influence us, the easier it is to resist the temptation of the devil. And, and we, we draw near to God uh, in, in simple, basic ways that we all know and that we all understand, right? We draw near to God through reading His Word, through studying the Bible, where we understand who God is and what He's done and how awesome He is. And then we draw near to God through prayer through spending lots of time praying and seeking Him and looking towards His will and asking Him to guard us and to protect us. And that's why in the, in the whole like explanation of how to pray, the Lord's Prayer, that's a part of it. Deliver us from evil. we got to be praying that prayer. Satan doesn't want us to do that. I, I'm convinced that Satan doesn't want us to be spending time in the Bible and praying. And, and I don't know if it's just me, but maybe you have experienced this too. There's this weird pull in our lives, in our hearts, away from things like prayer and, and Bible reading. It's like there's something that's drawing us away from it. Something We know that, that these things are important. And it's not even that we don't want to do them. We love reading God's Word and we love praying. But there just seems to be this thing, this wall, this barrier that makes it harder and harder for us to do those things that we, we long to do. Is that just me? Is it, is it you too? doesn't seem like it should be that much work to pray. But we have an enemy that doesn't want us to be spending time with God. That will try and draw us away from Him. But here the Bible tells us when we draw near to God, He draws near to us. Here in, in uh, Ephesians 6, Paul describes that, yeah, this battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual things. And he gives us that whole list of, 
armor, right? Things that we got to put on, ways in which we protect. Belt of truth. We don't, don't be convinced by the lies of the devil. If we're, if we're equipped with this truth, we understand the truth. We know the truth. We're going to, we're going to recognize the lies as soon as we hear them. Breastplate of righteousness where we're, we're guarding our hearts from evil by loving things that are right. The feet fitted with the gospel of peace. We're pursuing peace and unity and love with each other in a way that, that helps us to stand firm. The shield of faith. Guarding ourselves from those flaming arrows by, by trusting and always having our faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Helmet of salvation. Having this confidence that we are saved and we are sealed and that we are children of God and that nothing can change that. And, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The devil will tell you that there is no struggle, that there's nothing to resist. Everything's fine. Just, just go back to watching TV and being super busy and don't pay attention to spiritual things. Ignore them. Don't be aware. Don't resist. That's too much work. Just relax. Go with the flow like everybody else in this world. Just keep being apathetic and complacent. Don't believe that lie. Don't let your guard down. Don't be spiritually naive or complacent. Resist. Resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. Alright, so we've got to be aware. We've got to resist the devil. And finally, the last thing the Bible tells us to do is to stand firm, right? Stand firm. Ephesians 6.13, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand. Stand firm in this knowledge that you belong to God. You are His. Satan doesn't own you. He doesn't have any right to you. You're God's child. Stand firm in this knowledge that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord and that He has paid for all of our sins. Stand firm in the knowledge that the Spirit of God is in us. Stand firm knowing that because of that, greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. And when, when evil comes, and it, and it will, I guarantee it will. Stand firm. There's a story that I've heard a bunch of times. It's, it's a, about an old evangelist who lived in England. His name was Smith, Smith Wigglesworth. <laughs> Man of faith, trusted God, stood firm. There was one night he talks about how he was tossing and turning in his sleep, having horrible nightmares. He, he woke up and felt this like very real, very evil present, uh, presence in, in, in his midst and looked up and saw the devil himself standing at the foot of his bed. And, and with a, with a sigh of relief, he said, Oh, it's just you and rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs> 
I want us to have that kind of confidence and conviction. I want us to be uninterested in the offers of the devil because we value the Word of God so much more. I want us to be completely repulsed by the the temptations that the devil dangles in front of us to entice us because we are just so enamored with God and His beauty and all that He has given us. I want us to be completely unafraid of the empty threats that Satan curls at us because we have such confidence in who we are as children of God. I want us to be ready for that that day of evil and temptation and hurt and hardship and fear and anger and outfitted with the full armor of God. So when those times come, we will stand. God, I pray for that. I pray that You would give us courage and strength. That You would give us the knowledge that You're a God who is with us and that You protect us and that You love us and that Your Spirit is in us. Lord, help us to not fall prey to the lies and to the temptations and to the oppression and to the attacks of this enemy that wants to separate us from You and from Your church and from Your Word. Help us to resist Him. Help us to draw nearer and nearer to You. God, when those attacks come, help us to stand firm. Thank You for Your Word, dear God. Even the stretching, scary, hard parts like this story here of Ananias and Sapphira. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't seek money or pride or fame or power or glory or or that our desire would simply be to honor and serve and worship You. Lord, make us living sacrifices where our whole life is given in devotion to You for Your glory and Your honor because You're a God who deserves it. You're so worthy of all our praise. Thank You, God, for what You've given us through Jesus Christ our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.